This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast talking about, uh, well, Canberra, politics, power, people. Joining us today is Jeff Kitney, uh, a long-time sort of uh, reporter on politics in Australia, long-time work for um, Fairfax, the Sydney Morning Herald, also with the Financial Review, uh, we'll hear a little bit about that. But he's got a new book out called Beyond the Newsroom, subtitled Politics, Power and People. It's sort of Jeff's collected writings, but, uh, Jeff, it's a bit more than that as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit more. It's uh, It's got um, a lot of contemporary content in it as well. Um, I've sort of um, explained... You know the circumstances of the of the stories that uh, that I've selected to include in the book. Um, my work uh, so it goes right back to my um, entry into journalism fifty years ago, more than fifty years ago, uh, on a country newspaper in Western Australia. Then it goes through uh, my work. I then worked in Perth. Um, I subsequently got posted to Canberra as a correspondent uh, for the Perth newspaper. I then got uh, hired by Fairfax. Uh, initially by um, the National Times, actually, which is defunct now, sadly. Uh, then on to uh, the Financial Review, then to the Sydney Morning Herald. Then I got posted to Europe for the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, then subsequently came back to Australia for a period, uh, covered uh, a little bit of federal politics, politics again, then, then went back to Europe for the Financial Review. Um, and finally returned once again to Canberra, which was always my base uh, for the last few years of my career. Yeah. Um, I'll start talking to you about the book, but before we wrap today, I'd just like to hear a little bit about what's life like been the um, last couple of years for you and um, get your thoughts on um, where Fairfax has got to under new ownership with Nine and, and your thoughts on the publications these days. Um but but start off with the book. I guess the there's a very powerful intro you've written about some time you spend in Kosovo, um, covering the conflict there, um, and it, it seems to have had a big impact on you. It did. Um, um, I went to Kosovo, well, I actually went to the former Yugoslavia um, between the end of the uh, the wars in Serbia and um, and um, uh, Croatia, and the the subsequent war in Kosovo. So I did, uh, I, I visited it quite a few times and then subsequently I was in Belgrade for the, when the NATO uh, bombing uh, took place to get rid of Slobodan Milosevic. Um, from the first moment I went there, it had a huge impact on me because within, on the first day that we drove from, I think we landed at Zagreb and then headed out uh, from there. And on that first day, um, we started driving through villages where um, the village would look perfectly normal, uh, you know, as you entered, and then you would find part of the village completely raised, nothing left standing, absolutely flattened, and quickly realised that this was this was the sort of architecture of uh, of ethnic cleansing. This was um, in villages where there were different ethnic groups, the dominant ethnic group. Um, wiped out the, the the minority group. So, and this was not just confined to one country. This was right across Yugoslavia, and it it um, I mean the impact it had on me was uh, coming from a country which had a very successful multicultural uh, society um, to go and see this where ethnic division and conflict had had become 
uh, you know, a matter of life and death and death on a large scale and destruction on a large scale. Um, I just realised, well, firstly, the, you know, the horror of that, but also, um, you know, the difference between being a political reporter in Canberra covering, you know, uh, bloodless wars between uh, political parties and then going to where there was a real war where, you know, people, lots of people had died. Um, and, you know, I, I, was, I met uh, journalists, war correspondents who had covered wars like this for their entire careers. And I thought, God, you know, the scale of what I do compared to what they do is just completely different. And, uh, yeah, it was a very, very, um, it was a great learning experience. I think you, you mentioned too in the book about the difference between, you know, working in Canberra, you could really do your job with hardly leaving your office all week. You'd be on the phone, you might be walking the corridors a bit, but you'd, you'd perhaps rarely get out. And how diff- very different it was sort of being a, a foreign correspondent, as it were. Well, I think one of the things about that is that um, in Canberra you're dealing with a, you know, a captured, a captured audience, or you know the people you deal with are, um, you know, are politicians and, and bureaucrats and so on. You don't actually have very much contact with ordinary people. And then when I went to cover uh, Europe, and then particularly you know what was happening in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, um, that's all I was dealing with was people and you know people who were suffering the consequences of disastrous politics. Uh, and that was a really eye-opening experience. I mean, you know, it, it made me realise that um, when we sit in Canberra and we cover what's going on and we comment about, you know, the importance of events and so on, um, we do it from a fairly rarefied position. And I guess, you know, that's been one of the great complaints and criticisms of Canberra political reporting you know, is that it's, it's not actually in touch with, uh, you know, the real concerns of Australia. I, I think that's exaggerated. I think we, you know, we still have families and friends and relatives all over the country, so we, we, we're not completely in an ivory tower isolated from the rest of the world. But, yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly a big difference. What, um, what, what years did you work in Europe, roughly? I worked for uh, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age from 1997 to 2000. And then I worked in London for the Financial Review from 2004 to 2009. So um, eight years of luck. And both of those jobs were similar jobs in that I was Europe correspondent, uh, which meant um, being based in Berlin in Germany and then London uh, for the second stint, but travelling all over Europe. So I did things like... uh, cover Russia. Um, the, the original decision to go to Europe uh, and to, to set up in Berlin was as a consequence of um, the paper closing down its bureau in Moscow. Um, there was a feeling then that um, Russia was becoming less relevant. Europe and particularly Berlin was, as it was due to become the capital of uh, Germany again by 2000, uh, was probably the better place to view it from. And I certainly think, from my experience, um, you know, Berlin was the ideal place to be. Yeah. Um, changing technologies, of course, from when you, I guess, first were overseas. I guess email was an emerging technology and you you probably had to still file a bit of copy the old way. I don't know whether you'd fax it or phone it down the line or whatever, but I guess by the time you left London, it was a very different sort of scenario, wasn't it? Oh, it was completely transformed. Um, when I first went to uh, to Kosovo or went to uh, former Yugoslavia, um, we did have mobile phones, but they were um, 
you know, in most places they didn't work. So, in fact, um, the way that we communicated often was by satellite phone. By the way, I had I worked with a photographer who had to carry all his chemicals and processing and used to have to find a dark space somewhere <laughs> in the night to, to process his stuff. I was amazed at how he did it. But we did have problems with various airlines who weren't all that happy about him <laughs> lugging these last, vast amounts of chemical onto the plane or sticking it in the hole. But... Um, yeah, so so we used we had to use satellite phones, which was got us into trouble, or could have got us into trouble in uh, during the, the NATO bombing of uh, Yugoslavia because uh, of of, uh, of Serbia because um, uh, any foreigners who had satellite phones were su- suspected of being uh, agents for uh, NATO or for, for the Western Alliance, and uh, and two of those people were former Australian aid workers who uh, were working out of um, Pristina in um, in Kosovo, who ended up disappearing for three months. In and we subsequently found that they'd been locked up in Serbian jails because they were suspected of using the satellite phones to provide NATO with targeting information for for the bombing campaign. So um, I actually I got kicked out of um, of Serbia in the height of the of the bombing. Um, I didn't have phone my photographer actually had the satellite phone and he he managed to stay there but I was probably fortunate that I wasn't carrying one when um, when the guards uh, searched me and so on when I got to the border um talk to you a bit about Canberra because it was um a lot was Bob Hawke the first prime minister you covered in Canberra no, no? Whitlam was my first, the really? first prime minister oh, I covered. Right. yes yeah yeah uh, I arrived in Canberra in uh, mid-1975 just as the place was melting down. I mean, as the Whitland government was melting down. Um, I worked for the Perth Daily News, which is also now defunct, uh, the Perth Afternoon Newspaper. And um, I think I had, you know, some extraordinary number, over 100 days where I had a front page story uh, in the first six months that I was there. So it was obviously the dominant story of what was going on in Australia. And I was in, I was in Parliament House on the day of the, the sacking of Whitland. And, um, yeah, I mean... In a way, that's still the biggest story I've covered. I mean, the war in uh, in Yugoslavia was was obviously, you know, a much more uh, vivid, uh, extraordinary thing going on over a long period of time. But the, the, for a one-day story or for a story that, you know, had a big lead-up and then a massive conclusion, uh, the, the, there's nothing that I think compares with the sacking of the Whitlam government. Were you on those Parliament House steps? Is that famous? It's that famous photo, I think, of Goff. You see Richard Carlton. That's right. Deciding oh, yeah. thereabouts. Yeah, I was. I was on the steps and saw Goff make his uh, declaration of war against John Kerr. <laughs> uh, and, of course, um, you know, the bizarre thing of Norman Gunston wandering around through the crowd with his um, his um, tissue paper on his <laughs> on his shaving cuts <laughs> trying to interview people. Uh, it, was, it was an... Um, a scene you wouldn't see anywhere else in the world, I think. I mean, you know, a very, very serious nation-splitting moment, uh, but still, you know, people enjoy, you know, laughing at what was going on and, uh, and Norman Gunson doing his bizarre thing. It was... Um, he tried to interview Bob Hawke, I remember, and Bob Hawke said, this is too serious for that, you know, go away. So, <laughs> uh, a lot of journalists have written about that that and the aftermath. Have you had books out in the past about any of that stuff? No, I've written chapters for books. I've written a chapter for a Whitland book and a chapter for a Hawke book. Okay. Um, my feeling was that there are a lot of books about this. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure another one 
uh, with another journalist expressing their view about it. Uh, was yeah. necessary. I mean, the detail of what happened was covered in, you know, uh, you know elaborately by everybody. So, um, but there is a chapter in my book about that and about the experience of uh, November 11th, 75. And, um, you know, it's, it, I think, you know, it's, it's, that's one of the more interesting points of the book. Sure. The, um, I wondered if, I mean, just looking through here at the chapters in your book, if you, is it possible to make a generalisation about politics and maybe prime ministers almost pre-2000 and post-2000? There seems to be different worlds. I mean, you had prime ministers who were almost semi-entertainers in Bob Hawke and, and Paul Keating. Um, and then post-2000, I mean, there was the John Howard period, but then we gone into a fairly tumultuous few years where prime ministers get turned over a fair bit. Can you make generalisations comparing the two? Well, areas? I think, um, I mean, I think I would compare, uh, I'd, I'd divide it between the pre-Howard period and the post-Howard period. Okay. Um, the pre-Howard period, um, you know, the Canberra media was the absolute centre of everything that happened. You know, we were the, the broadcasters of politics. We disseminated pretty much everything that was going on. Howard was the first Prime Minister who talked over the press gallery, who went direct to the talkback radio stations and so on. And uh, and that was a big change and a very successful one, I think, from Howard's point of view. Um, then I suppose you would say there's a third period, which is the period of, um, of uh, Prime Ministerial turmoil, um, which really started, well, did start with uh, the, the Labor Party dumping Kevin Rudd, which... You know, I think history will show uh, was you know started a, a period of great upheaval and turmoil, and um, I think it meant that what happened was that prime ministers were ended you know were were um, uh, tested, and the the tests were you know very premature about how they were going and what they were you know what, whether they were going to be successful or not, and so the patients of the political parties became very, very short, but also the political parties became very, very divided. And that was certainly true of the coalition and the, you know, the turmoil on their side has essentially been a, an internal struggle for the, for the soul of the party, uh, a struggle that's still going on, I think, um, and may yet surface again uh, at some point in the future. You're right. Um, I'm not sure whose chapter it was in. Um, you're right about you knew Kevin Rudd and Tony Abbott in the early days, I guess, when they first entered Parliament, looking back now on that, were there, did either of them seem Prime Minister material at, at the time when you first encountered them? No, not at all. Um, um, Kevin Rudd was, uh, was a senior advisor to Wayne Goss in the Queensland Government. He was a sort of bureaucratic type figure. Uh, he, I think he ran the Cabinet Office there. The first time I met him, he came to Canberra to talk to a few of the senior journalists there about um, whether we thought Wayne Goss uh, would be, um, you know, a, a potential leader of the, the Federal Labor Party uh, and the potential Prime Minister. He was, he was acting as an agent for Goss um, and certainly the idea of Kevin being Prime Minister never entered my head at that stage. Uh, Tony Abbott was, um, was John Hewson's press secretary when Hewson was leader of the party. Um, he was a former journo. Um, he used to uh, uh, swag around the corridors of the press gallery uh, trying to, to sell the case for John Hewson's fight back package. Um, in a way, for some of us, Tony became a nuisance because he would just turn up at the wrong time of day when 
you would try to write a story and stand over your shoulder and try and tell you, you know, what you should be writing and how you should be writing it. Um, and again, you know, the idea of Tony. Uh, I must say, when I came back from, from Europe and uh, after being away for a fair while and people were talking about Tony as a, a leader of the party, I just couldn't believe it. I just thought... Um, this is extraordinary. I do remember on the day that Tony got the leadership, um, a colleague um, um, I bumped into in the corridor very soon after the announcement and this colleague was just falling about laughing, saying, this is just ridiculous, you know, he's going to be a disaster. Well, of course, he wasn't a disaster. He was actually a very good retail politician. The, uh, of those, there's sort of four people, isn't there? There's Gillard, Turnbull, um, uh, Abbott, and, and um, Rudd. Who's the other one? Um, we were just Rudd. talking. Right, sorry, you're yeah. right. Of those four, and they all had a relatively short term in office, who do you think could have, you know, could have, could any of them done a good job long term if they weren't sort of embroiled in, in, it's very, it's very hard to say, to divorce, um, you know, what happened to them in the processes yeah. inside the party yeah. uh, and, and say, well, if that hadn't happened, then something else might have happened and they may have been different. Um, I think in, all, in their own way, they may all have you know, made better prime ministers if they'd had time. I think that's the nature of the job. If you, you get a, a, some time in the job, you learn on the job and, and so on. Um, I would say uh, Gillard, I think, probably had great potential. Um, I think she she made a huge mistake when she uh, agreed to uh, to the plotter's demands that she run against Rudd. I think if she'd waited longer, um, you know, that, that it, she might have had uh, a, a better chance of getting to the leadership in a natural way and uh, because, you know, she, she was fighting behind the eight ball from the, from the time she got there because of what happened. Um, in a way, they're all, to me, they're all big disappointments because, um, you know, I think they all ultimately, you know, um, if you get there, if you get the job, uh, then there's, you've got something, there's something about you that, um, you know, is, 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 um, is different to, to normal people. Um, I'd say, I'd, I'd have to say Turma was a big disappointment. He seemed to me to be, um, you know, the one who, um, was most suited to the job or seemed to be conditioned to, for the job and, uh, and it was, you know, a, a great failure, although not all his fault. Yeah. I mean, you, you're one of your pieces on um, Turnbull, you call him an enigma, um, yeah. mis- mystifying. Was he almost too ambitious? I mean, he, he wanted to excel in too many parts of his life and maybe didn't concentrate on one or...? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, he was hungry for the job and the fact that he... Um, you know, took the leadership of the opposition twice to get it. Um, yeah, I, um, you know, as I noted at the end um, of uh, of that chapter, um, you know, his two great causes, which were climate change and, and an Australian Republic, uh, were no further down the track when he left than when he first entered Parliament to pursue those causes. So, um, you know, that's a that's a pretty big failure, I think. Um, so yeah, he was, but I, I also, I mean, it's just been in the conversations I've been having about the book recently, um, have been reflecting on how Australia might have been different if John Hewson had won the 1993 election. Okay. Um, um, uh, you know, it's, um, th- that was the great, you know, Paul Keating's, uh, sweetest victory of all. Um, it was not expected, to, Labor was not expected to win, Hewson was expected to win. If Hewson had won that election, 
uh, we probably wouldn't have had Howard subsequently. Um, um, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. sort of a rather pointless exercise, but it is sure. you know, sure. interesting in the, you know, the characters and their impact on the on the political scene. Interested on your thoughts on maybe Morrison, how and how he's sort of handling the media, if you like, and the you know is because um, he was an unexpected prime minister, I guess, wasn't he? He was an unexpected prime minister. Um, I mean, there had been speculation that he, he was ambitious. People who knew him said he was ambitious, um, but yeah, how he got it was a surprise. Um, he's, I mean, he's governing in a completely unprecedented time, completely extraordinary, um, and um, a time when um, what the, the nation wants is, is somebody who, um, you know, is dealing with the crisis uh, in a way that... Um, you know, uh, seems to be reasonably efficient, um, and he seems to have done that. I mean, the contrast between his the bushfire period and the coronavirus period is very, very striking. It seems to me he learnt a lot uh, from that those initial days when he didn't manage, uh, he wasn't very good at managing the situation to now managing it quite well. One of the things I don't like about his prime ministership is, is the, the, you know, I mean, he's not very free with information. He's very reluctant to get into a dialogue with uh, with journalists about uh, issues he's very very tightly controlled um you know that's okay at the moment i don't know in the longer term how that's going to work but um, um yeah. you know, he's he's a he's come to the leadership at an extraordinary time and these his prime ministership will be extraordinary no matter what um i want to ask you about your days at Fairfax. The, so w when did you last work for Fairfax and who was, was that under Highwood? No, um, my last editor-in-chief was uh, Michael Stutchbury. <coughs> but I mean, Highwood would have been the chief executive of the company. He was the chief executive of the company, company that's right, yes. Um, right. Before uh, Fairfax, uh, the, the Fairfax 9 deal. Yes, yeah, but because the company went under fairly significant transition during the Highwood years, didn't it? And I guess... You would have worked with Highwood as a colleague in the past, I guess. And <laughs> I remember the day Greg arrived in the press gallery as a young cadet from his first day at the Financial Review. Um, okay. So I've known him for a very long time. So, yeah. a, I mean, it might be an unfair question, but do you think he did a good job at trying to keep the company going? I mean, there was one train of thought that I mean, he put, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs, but the upside was he, he was able to keep the company going and keep most of the mastheads as, uh, operating? Well, I think he was chief executive during an incredibly challenging time for newspapers. I mean, you know, the transformation of newspapers from the rivers of gold days to, you know, penny pinching um, was a massive transition. I personally am very sad that Fairfax um, was swallowed by nine and not the other way around. Um, I think... Um, Look, you know these are these are tough jobs and tough. To, you know you have to make some pretty tough decisions. Um, my feeling, as somebody who wasn't involved and somebody looking from the outside, was that there was too little weight given to the history of Fairfax. You know, its history is quite extraordinary in the, in the Australian media context and Australian public life, and that was sort of that's been lost. You know, it's that the Fairfax brand, if you like, is 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 obviously changed by the merger with Channel 9, with the Nine um, Entertainment Network. Um, and I think a lot's been lost uh, in terms of the sense 
of the people who work for the company uh, of that history of the independent journalism of um, uh, you know of benevolent um, proprietors and so on. Um, you know, obviously these are very very different times, but. Um, I was very, very sad to see Fairfax gobbled up and disappear. Yeah. Um, do you still read the, the publications these days? I still do. Um, I mean, I, I read all the media, you know. <laughs> I'm a media junkie, have been all along. Um, I, uh, I mean, I still write occasionally for the Financial Review. In fact, they ran an extract from the book uh, in last weekend's paper. Um, I've, you know, occasionally get called to to do a piece, uh, happily do it. Um, so yeah, I'm still very engaged in as a as a reader, but occasionally as a contributor as well. Okay, and where's home for you these days? You you in Sydney or no? I'm in Canberra. Um, in Canberra, okay. Yeah, my um, wife's family are all in Canberra. My family is scattered all over the world. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, my son's a, a journalist. He works for the Australian. In fact, he's just. I think you might have spoken to him yesterday about I his book. Spoken to him yesterday, yep. yeah. So we, we've got a two uh, two uh, a book each on the uh, new releases list. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I've always loved Canberra. Um, even you know after living in huge cities like London and Berlin and all the, the you know the fantastic things that there are about those living in a big city. I lived in Sydney for a couple of years. Um, I found Sydney a very hard place to live compared to those other cities. Um, the infrastructure in Sydney just isn't like a European city. Um, um, but I love the natural environment, Canberra, and I still follow the politics very closely. So you know, the combination of those things means it's you know, the natural place to be. Yeah, so you, your son Damon's a you know, very successful journo but with the Australian for a decade. Yeah, we spoke to him about his book yesterday. But your dad um, flirted with politics, didn't he? He did. Um, and that's really how I got interested in politics. Um, I must say from, you know, my earliest days, I remember that Dad always listened to the news on the ABC. Every news bulletin, he would sit down and turn and say, quiet, you know, I'm going to listen to the news. He followed the news very, very closely. He was um, a very active member in the local community. This is in the little town of Donnybrook, which is a Granny Smith apple growing area in the southwest of Western Australia. Um, he was the Rotary Club president, the uh, golf club president and all that sort of stuff. And um, out of the blue, he had actually been a member of the Liberal Party, although not very active, but out of the blue he got approached by the Country Party in those days, as it was, to stand for the local seat of Blackwood. And I think he was hugely flattered. His, his mother, who had come out from England um, in, two, in 1910 as a 210-pound pom, was absolutely gobsmacked that her son was being asked to stand for Parliament. So he stood... But he did not enjoy the experience. He, it wasn't for him. Um, he didn't. My father's a very gentle man and quite a sentimental man, and he didn't. He just couldn't cope with the, the backstabbing and the, you know, the, the brutality, if you like, of, of of the political game. So he actually got out after his first term in, in Parliament. In fact, they abolished his seat, so he he, uh, he took that opportunity not to go any further. But that that was that got me hooked on politics, and uh, and have been ever since. Right. Okay. Just a couple of things to finish on. Do you do you um, use social media much? Yes. Um, uh, well, um, Facebook and Twitter are. I mean, Twitter is you know uh, my sort of connection to what's going on and you know, where I still have a, a voice 
uh, a small one, but, uh, you know, I like to have my say on things still. Um, Facebook, I tend to use for family just because I have a daughter living in Dubai, I have a son living in Singapore and another son living in Melbourne and my sister and my mother live in Perth. So, uh, oh. uh, you know, Facebook's pretty important. And, um, we use, yeah, they use various things. Uh, so, yeah, I do. I, I am pretty involved in social media. Yeah, and uh, despite the sort of challenging times and the the impact on the media, I guess over the last two decades, but particularly this year, there's, there's still, you know, a young, talented journo still finding a way to, to you know, get a voice? I think uh, a lot of young people who would like to be journalists and potentially might be talented journalists are finding that it's impossible to get into the, into the industry now. I think, um, you know, the way that I got in, sort of starting on a country newspaper... Yeah. Putting out the paper within six months of of of, of being hired, that and, and hired without a, a degree. I mean, I you know left school quite early. Um, that's that course is not available to anybody these days. It bothers me. It worries me that you know there's still a lot of journalism schools in Australia pumping out lots of kids with journalism degrees who have Buckley's chance of getting a job in journalism. Yeah. So um, you know that's you know, the media scene is obviously very different. There are different sorts of jobs now. And obviously, social media presents new opportunities. But, um, and I'm, you know, it's sad to see what's happened to newspapers no doubt about. From, from my point of view, I was incredibly lucky. I was there for the golden years, no doubt about that, when there was lots of money and lots of opportunities. Um, and much, much tougher now. Yeah. Good place to end on. Um, Jeff, look, great talking to you today. Really appreciate your time. Um, good luck with the book. Uh, Beyond the Newsroom, it's out now, uh, Wilkinson Publishing. So um, thank you again. Thanks, Jed.